0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. We are in Psalm 63, the 63rd Psalm uh, this morning. In the 1700s, there was a young Anglican minister named John Wesley who at that time had grown troubled with the Church of England because he saw a lack of piety. That's the word he used, piety. And what he meant by that is he said, there's just really not a lot of love, there's not a lot of joy, there's not a lot of passion for Jesus. And following this amazing encounter that he had with God that totally transformed his life, he became an itinerant preacher, 1700, so he rode on horseback from town to town and place to place. And as he went to different places, he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he left those places, he made sure that there was a meeting place or a group of people that would regularly meet together. And when they met together, he instructed them to ask this question, how goes it with your soul? And I think it's very good for us, the second week of our summer series in the Psalms, Good for the Soul, to start with Wesley's question, how goes it with your soul? When he said that, he meant, like, how is your soul? Like, what's your relationship with God like? What's your relationship with Jesus Christ like? What kind of condition is your soul in? So let's think about that question this morning. Think about it for your own life. How goes it with your soul? What is the condition of your soul right now? Some of you might respond to that and just say, I'm fine. Heard that before. I understand maybe, maybe, maybe the question is too intense for you. Maybe it kind of pushes on a certain button. Some of you might say, you know, I'm fine. Others of you might say, yeah, I'm, I think I'm Okay you know it it could be better but it's not super bad so we get the canadian responses out of the way now and <laughs> maybe some of you would say as you examine your soul you would say well i you know i uh, my soul's really actually kind of hurried right now or distracted i feel a little distracted maybe some of you would say your soul is weary or fragmented Some of you might even say, your soul is dry. Or maybe many of us would say, I just want more. Psalm 63 is a great place for us to park ourselves this morning as we consider the question um, of what condition our soul is in or, or how goes it with your soul Uh, Because this is a a psalm of David that is going to teach us that what is good for our soul is actually a passionate pursuit of God because God alone gives us what we truly need. I want to read for us Psalm 63. So if you have a copy of your God's Word, let's open it there. And I'm going to read it for us and just follow along as I read just so that we can get a sense of the emotion and the feeling that, that David is writing here. He says... But those who seek to destroy my life, they shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now this is Psalm 63. It's probably very familiar for some of you that are here. You've heard it, you've read it many times, or you've heard it preached on before. But I want you to see that really what is going on in the psalm is that David is trying to talk about how what is actually good for his own soul is what is good for our soul too. And that is a passionate pursuit of God because God alone gives us what we need. He starts with this in Psalm 63 verses 1 to 4. He says, if you're going to be passionate for God, and I want to just encourage you right now. like Let's just say that we all are going to agree with that. One of the things that we need to be is passionate for the Lord. If we're going to be passionate for the Lord, then here's where we start. We start with a longing for God's presence. Look what he says in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. He expresses his Allegiance to God when he says, "Oh God, you are my God." This is a very bold statement that he's making. He is mentioning God mentions God like twice in in this just short little phrase. "Oh God, you are my God." He's trying to express that God. It's about you and about nothing else. He talks about he's really expressing his relationship with the Lord, his submission to the Lord, his commitment to the Lord. He starts right at the beginning by laying the foundation of a passionate pursuit for God. Oh God, you are my God. It assumes this relationship with God when we know that it's the only way that you can have a relationship with God is if it's through faith in Jesus Christ, through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. It assumes a commitment to God, a, and in our case, a commitment to Jesus Christ. So can you say that today? Oh God, you are my God. Because it's impossible to long for God. It's impossible to really passionately pursue God without ultimately this faith that we have in Jesus Christ. He expresses his allegiance to God. Oh God, you are my God. And then he goes on and he expresses his eagerness for God. Do you see what he says? He says, earnestly I seek you. That comes from the word for the word dawn, or like the beginning of the day, when the sun rises. That's why some of your translations translate this phrase, early in the morning I seek you. The idea here is a seeking God early, seeking God diligently, seeking God intently, seeking God earnestly. In other words, you don't have to drag David out of bed to have time with the Lord in the morning. I found that very um, convicting this week because I'm looking over my own life and my own pattern and I'm thinking, how many days do I have to actually drag myself out of bed? I mean, thank God I am actually driving myself out of bed. But how many times do I actually have to drag myself out of bed to spend my time with the Lord? You see, David, he has this eagerness see he has a longing for the presence of God he's in passionate pursuit for the Lord he has a a longing for God there's a an allegiance expressed there's an eagerness that he has and then he expresses his desperation for God he says there my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water he's desperate for the Lord his soul is thirsting he says my Flesh faints, it's the, that's the picture of, of being pale-faced, like the idea of being absolutely exhausted. He's giving an illustration here of the desert, okay? and In the desert, in the desert where there is no water, and it's like, if you're stuck in the desert and you have no water, what do you need? You need water. And so if you're out in the middle of the desert and it's super hot and you have no water and you need water, you're saying, I've got to find water. And so he's using this illustration, just like the person who's in the desert who's desperate for water, so David is desperate for God. Desperate for God. See, what is good for your soul is a passionate pursuit of God. It requires allegiance to the Lord. It requires Eagerness for God, it requires desperation for him. And I want to emphasize this even more so. You'll notice here in verse one, how many times he says, it's for God. He says, my God, oh God, you are my God. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. His longing is for the actual presence of God. He wants God. He wants God. Not an idea about God, not more information about God. He wants to experience God. He refuses to be complacent about this at all in in this verse in verse 1. God is absolutely everything to him, and that must be true for us as well. Tozer, in his book, Pursuit of God, talks about that in his quote in the book. He says, come, come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long-seeking. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth." How goes your soul? How is it? There's this passion. When I read when I read verse one, when I read verse one, I say, I want this. This is what I want. I want, like David, to be able to express day by day my allegiance to the Lord. To be eager for the Lord. To be desperate for the Lord. How goes it with your soul? Now, the obvious question is, well, how, how, how do I get this? Right? If you have this kind of longing inside of your heart, the question is, how? How do I get this? How do I arrive at this spot? It's not like you can switch a, a switch, right, and like kind of like go after it kind of thing, and, and, uh, and yet actually, you know, some of us are, could say, yeah, I'm going to leave here today, and tomorrow I'm going to be really passionate for the Lord, and you probably might make it through your first morning, but then Tuesday happens. All grace, right? we got grace for one another in all this. This is a lifelong pursuit. But how does this happen? I think verses 2 and 3 give us a really strong clue as to how this has happened in the life of David. Verses 2 and 3. He talks about here in these verses a growing clarity and conviction about who God is. Because longing and passion comes from us being God-centered and gospel-centered in our lives. Look at what he says. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you Now that word soul it could be could be understood as a result of his longing because he longs for God this is what he does or what he has done but it could also refer to the reason as to why he longs in the first place He focuses in on three things he says I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory and and then he says this because your steadfast love is better than life my lips will praise you. When I think of God's power, I don't know what you think about when you think about the power of God, but when I think of the power of God, I automatically think of creation. I think about the beginning of the universe, I think about how God created all things. He spoke that spoke it and it came into existence. It's like there, there's nothing more dramatic in my mind than, than God doing that. That He is the creator of this universe. He created it. When I think of, of power, I also go to the story of the Exodus when in my mind, when I'm replaying the story, when Egypt and they're in Egypt for hundreds of years, and now all of a sudden. They've been released, and as they go, God leads them towards the Red Sea. And as they turn around, they see Pharaoh chasing after them. It's like, whoa, what did we just sign up for? And there's the sea, and then there's Pharaoh. What are we going to do? And God, in a mighty act, separates the water, pushes the water apart, and they walk through on dry land. They walk through dry land dry, bone-dry land and the sea, and not only that, when they get to the other side, the water comes down on top of Pharaoh. And I said, that's power. Power. And when I think of power, I think of Jesus. The power of God. The limitless power of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Mark records this so well in his gospel. It he starts, he starts in Mark chapter 4, verses 35-41, for when he tells us this story about Jesus being in the back of the boat, falling asleep, and they're in the middle of this storm, and the disciples are freaking out. Another one of those freak-out sessions. We're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, you know, kind of idea. And Jesus stands up and he says, he just looks at the storm and he says, Peace be still! And shh! That's power. Power over all of creation. Then the very next story in Mark's gospel, when he goes to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, Jesus is confronted with a man who is demon-possessed, and Jesus casts the demons out. So all of a sudden, we're not only we see Jesus as the powerful one over all creation, but now he's the powerful one over all of the demons. Then the very next story... Right, Mark is recording for us this story and we see a woman who has had a lifelong disease and she touches the hem of Jesus and it says that Jesus felt the power go out from him. He stops and, and she's healed. So not only did Jesus have power over all creation, but he has power over the demonic. He has power over disease. And then wrapped around that story is another story about Jairus, who had a daughter, who had died, and Jesus raises her back up to dead. So not only is Jesus the powerful one over all creation, but he's the powerful one over all the demonic. He's the powerful over disease. He's powerful over death. That's right. Ultimately, we see that in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ too, Right? That's power. When I think of glory, I think of Moses pleading with God in the Old Testament, God, show me your glory, Exodus chapter 33. I think of the Shekinah glory, the cloud leading the nation, and then at night, the pillar of fire. I think of the meeting tent and the Tabernacle and the temple, and how the glory of the Lord resided in these places. And then, and then I am reminded of Jesus the full concentration of God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, "And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth." Glory and then when I think of steadfast love, I think of God's said his resolute, his loyal covenant love to us. I'm reminded of Abraham, how God reached down in his grace and touched this man's life and made a covenant with him that transformed history. I think of words like Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 through 23 that reminds us of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases it. Other places in the Psalms where it endures forever. And then I'm reminded of Jesus. The culmination of God's steadfast love. First John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Wow, your steadfast love is so much better than life, isn't it? Longing for the presence of God, longing for the presence of Jesus Christ, longing for the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives because he is power, he is glory, he is steadfast love. And the longing and the passionate pursuit of God grows as you gain a greater clarity and a conviction about who God is and what he has done for you in Christ. And this requires of us a deep contemplation. You see what it says in verse 2? He says, I have Looked upon you, and then he says in the next line, "Beholding." All right, I've looked upon you, beholding. Listen, looking upon God's power and His glory, and and looking at his, considering the steadfast love, beholding all that. Like, like like that doesn't happen fast. You can't Google it. If that's even a word, like a you know a new verb for you can't Google it. 2010, Brenda and I um, had the privilege to be able to visit Paris. We, it was our 25th anniversary, so do the math. Done? Okay, good. Um, we were visiting our son in, in Germany who doing some missionary work, and we thought, you know, at the end of that trip, why don't we just tag on like three days and we'll go to Paris? Like three days in Paris. Like what was I thinking? worse than that our mission we our stated mission was to do Paris like I mean we were going to visit as much as we possibly could in three days some of the most intense days of of our marriage lives were were in Paris (laughs) okay we saw the Eiffel Tower we saw Versailles we saw Notre Dame because there hadn't been a fire there yet and then then we got to go to the Louvre right like uh one of the world's largest art museums. And we decided to do that over two days because we had done some reading, you know, we did some reading ahead of time and understood that if you're going to go there, the best time to go is at night because the lines are, 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 are shortest for the main art installations like the Mona Lisa and places like that. So we thought, okay, we'll go at night. So we went to the evening one night and we visited, you know, the 10 or 12 really must-see things that we had to see. We did that, we had to move quickly, but we did that, and then the next day, we went back and we visited all the other things and stuff that nobody ever wants to see. <laughs> and uh, we did all those things, and I will tell you, it worked. We, I think we went to almost every square inch of that museum. And we were moving, man, I'm telling you, we were going from place to place, boom, boom, I mean, it's big, I mean, I, I can't, if you've never been there before, it's huge. And we moved so quickly, so quickly, so much so that I can remember this one time when I was—we were moving from one room to the next, and as we were moving, well, we saw that. Let's go on to the next thing, and we're moving to the next thing, and all of a sudden, I saw out of the corner of my, on my eye, I saw a guy standing, actually no, sitting, sitting before a piece of art. He was just sitting there. He was just sitting there, <laughs> observing taking it all in. And for one fleeting second, as I looked at him, as I was on to my next thing, I thought to myself, I wish I was that guy. So it is with God and his power, his glory, and his steadfast love. Sometimes our pace does not allow us to take it all in so that we are increasing our clarity and our conviction and stoking our longing and our passion god calls followers of jesus to live a different way in the world and our world our culture is instant immediate and superficial so how do we live differently we live differently by forming disciplines and habits That will allow us to slow down, create space, and find time to contemplate God's power, glory, his steadfast love that is found in Jesus Christ. So, for your summer, I have some tips for you to help you how to learn how to contemplate a little bit better. I have called them Earl's Eight. Because... Earl's 10 just didn't sound as cool as Earl's 8, okay? So here's, as we're going to go, we're just going to run through them really quickly. I think some of these are helpful. They're things that I, I've tried to learn in my own life. Um, I want to just say before we go through them, here I want to understand this, that we are all in different stages of life and different circumstances. So this is in no way trying to say that it's like the best way of doing things. It's just some, some tips, Okay. Here's number one. If you're writing these down, it'd be good to write them down. Here you go. In the first hour of your day, don't touch your phone. Amen. Wow. You know, the nerve, the nerve that I strike every single time I say that, <laughs> right? The nerve that is struck. Don't touch your phone. You say, well, why? Because, come on, let's be honest. There's just a lot of distractions on your phone, right? I, you know, I've tried I've tried, to do my, I've tried to do it on my devotions on the phone. I've tried to do that all the kind of... But I mean, rarely, rarely for me am I able to get through a, a time with the Lord without actually thinking about something that's on another app or actually going to another app or sharing a message that was sent to me by somebody. All these different things. I'm just telling you, for the first hour of your day, don't touch your phone. Number two. Use a hard copy of God's Word when you do your Bible reading. The reason for that is if you don't do that, you're going to violate number one. (laughs) Right? Well, think about it. Right? So use use a hard copy of God's Word to do your Bible reading. Number three, if able, pray out loud to God. Right? If you're able to do that, Um, doing that, being active in prayer helps you, keeps you focused. Right? So... If you can do that, or, or pray scripturally, audibly, or, you know, do something that's going to allow you to then just thinking about things. Kind of do it that way. I found that to be really helpful. Read, number four, read scripture slowly. Now read it slowly. Don't be in a rush. Right? Repeat if necessary. Right? Because you want to counter the speed of the world. Everything else you do is fast. The Lord doesn't want you to go fast. Right? So, counter the speed of the world. Number five, play worship music. Worship music that's focused, and let me just as a caveat, let me say this play worship music, the worship music that is focused on who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. All right, so play play worship music. They're so powerful when you can combine those two things in a song. Not all worship music is created equal. All right, so look for those things that will reinforce to you the steadfast love of the Lord, His power, His glory. Number six, delete. All right, for a season, delete some of your apps. All right, that goes back. Why is he? Why is he so possessed about my phone? Like, don't talk, don't talk about my phone. <laughs> right? Delete your apps. Stay off social media, all right? Some of you, a day would be a victory. For others of us, weeks would be good, or maybe not even have them on your phone in the first place. Why? Why is that important? Because we have to let God's love for us form us, not what our friends and followers think about us form us, right? So, Send your hate email to somebody else, okay? So, number seven, number seven. Here's number seven. Evaluate, evaluate. Take this summer to evaluate the pace of your family life. How active you are. Because here, this is important. We have to create room and space to be able to contemplate the power and the glory and the steadfast love of God and as family to do that together. And sometimes being too active makes you so busy that it becomes the enemy of being attentive. And then number eight, get some friends who will regularly and often ask you the question, how goes it with your soul? See, what's good for our soul is a passionate pursuit of God because God alone gives us what we need and that requires of us a longing for the presence of God, but it also, second of all, requires of us a satisfaction in the provision of God. You see what he says in in verse five. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. He says that in verse five. Now, the word satisfied here is, is not, I'm okay with it. Like some people, when you go through a negotiation and someone asks you a question, are you okay with that? You say, yeah, I'm satisfied. That's not the idea of satisfaction here. Actually, the word means abundance, means prosperous, right? So you look at verse five, he says, My soul will be abundant, right? It will be absolutely, totally abundant. And he illustrates what he means when he uses the food analogy, as with fat and rich food. In other words, God. When, when you're in the presence of God and God is, God is with you, He's not handing out fast-processed spiritual food for your soul. No, with God, it's like having a full-course five-star spiritual meal. That's what it's like. It's being total satisfaction. You have this abundance. You, you will only find abundance in God. You will find abundance in God if you're satisfied, if you're satisfied with Him. And that abundance for our souls, interesting enough, comes from our meditating on God. You see what he says in verse 6? When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the washes of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. He's saying, I'm going to be satisfied. I will be abundant spiritually in my soul if, if I'm meditating on God. Our satisfaction, our abundance in God is linked to our meditation on God. That root word for meditation is, is the growl of the lion. Not the roar, not the blast, but the growl. The arrr. It's pretty dangerous sounding, isn't it? It's the growl, the, that growl. And it means it means to ponder or to give serious thought while mulling it over and muttering it to yourself. I love muttering. When I'm muttering, it means that something is consuming my mind and heart. Some people go, what are you muttering for? I'm muttering because there's something on my mind. There's something on my heart. I'm going it over and over and over again. I'm muttering it. I, I, when, when does he do this? He says I do it when I'm on my on my bed during the watches of the night. It's like a. 24-7 thing for him. He's eager in the morning and he's doing it at night. What is, he, what is he meditating on? He's meditating on God, on his power, on his glory, on his steadfast love, and his provision and his faithfulness. You see what he says in verse 7? You have been my help, he says. Verse 7 again, he talks about being, being in the shadow of, of his wing, of, the, of God's wings, They're like, like a, the bird, the mother bird who takes care of the little birds by just covering the wing. That's, he's saying that. He's saying, Your right hand upholds me in verse 8. So he's meditating on God's provision, on his faithfulness. He's recounting over and over again. He's muttering to himself over and over again the faithfulness of the Lord in his life. Right? Mulling over and, and muttering to himself God's faithfulness, his power, his glory, his steadfast love, his provision and protection. Thomas Chisholm wrote the poem, Great is Thy Faithfulness, before it became a hymn. He wrote these words. right Before, Before music was put to it, he wrote these words. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies, I see all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. He was... Recounting over his whole life and thinking about God's provision and his protection, and he writes these words Great is thy faithfulness! Great is thy faithfulness. He's, I can just envision him. You know, like, you know how hard it is to write a poem? He's my, you cannot see, he's thinking about this he's thinking about all the events of his life and he's muttering to himself he's meditating he's going over them over and over and over again and he comes up with these words great is your faithfulness great is your faithfulness morning by morning new mercies I see all I have needed thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness Lord unto me not great is my wealth Not great is my status in life, not great is my comfortableness, not great is my job, not great is my ministry, not great is my family, not great is my social media presence, not great is my success, because none of those things, none of them, lead to abundance. Only great is your faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Come on, sing it with me. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And the more you meditate on that, the more your soul clings to the Lord, as he says in verse 8. He longs for the Lord. He's in passionate pursuit of the Lord. And then this, he has confidence in the plan of God. Look at verse 9. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now he's not writing this psalm in the midst of a calm period in his life, right? He is facing a very difficult situation, a very real threat. It turns out probably more than likely this is about his fleeing from his son Absalom and he's running for his life, and yet he has this confidence that God will vindicate him, and that God will bring judgment. And the context of our life is similar sometimes. It's not always calm. It's not always perfectly still. Sometimes it's chaotic. Sometimes it's full of hurt. Sometimes it's increasingly challenging. But our confidence is found in knowing that God is in control and that he has a plan, that he is powerful, that he is glorious, and he always expresses steadfast love to those that he loves. He indeed is faithful. He provides. He protects. He will ultimately vindicate and judge sin. And so we see this confidence that he has in the plan of God. I mean, what's good for our soul? It's a passionate pursuit of God because we know that God alone gives us what we truly need. And so we long for the Lord, right? We, we, we place our satisfaction in the provision the Lord. We meditate on that. We concentrate on that. And then we have this confidence in the plan of God. And that all leads to this very important thing. It leads to a delight in the person of God. Take a look at it. All through this psalm, he repeats this over and over again. Look at verse 3. My lips will praise you. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my my lips will praise you. He said, I can't keep silent about God and his power and his glory and his steadfast love. I'm going to praise the Lord. Verse 4. I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. There's a lifelong pursuit right, is a full life of praise. Verse five, my my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Not just lips, but joyful lips. This word here is the idea of shouting loudly as an expression of joy. Verse seven, I will sing for joy. Again, he can't stay quiet about this. Verse 11, the king shall rejoice of all who swear by him and will exalt. This is how you know if you're passionately pursuing after the Lord. You have a delight in God. If you long for the presence of God, if you're fully satisfied with the provision of God, if you're confident in the plan of God, you will be delighting in God. You worship, you're joyful, you're, there's just too much awesomeness to, awesomeness to stay quiet about. So how goes it with your soul? What is good for our soul is what we're reminded by David in Psalm 63. It's a passionate pursuit of God because God alone gives us what we truly need. And so this morning we're going to close our time by praying in just a moment and then we're going to have a song just sung over us. I'm just going to encourage you just to stay seated in your seat and just think about all the things that we have Read about here in Psalm sixty-three this morning. Just consider for yourself, like how you know how how is it with your soul? Like how passionate are you actually for God for Jesus right now? Are you resting in the abundance of God's provision? Are you longing for Him? Are you confident in His plan? Are you delighting in Him? Because that's what's good for our soul. Let's pray together. So, Father, I pray right now, I pray right now that you will do what you can only do. And that is take the word of God and move it into our hearts and our souls. Lord, please do do a work. Lord, I know there are people here this morning who desperately want more. God, give us a passion for you. Lord, please teach us, Lord. Lead us. Lead us, Lord. None like you, Lord. Give us that kind of passion for you. None like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.